Dear church family, Genesis 3 is a, a sad chapter and a happy chapter. Sad because of our deep fall in Adam. Sad because this chapter brings with it by implication all the sin and evil and sorrow that would come upon this world and into our lives. But happy because here we have the first Advent promise in verse 15 that there is a seed coming, the seed of the woman who would bruise, fatally bruise the head of the serpent. But also because Adam and Eve would be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the seed. And so this chapter has been called the black, the red, and the white chapter in the Bible. Black because of sin. Red because of the blood that was shed in verse 21. And white because of the hope it gives. All flowing in an interacting way with the protoevangelium, as it's called, the proto meaning before, and evangel meaning the gospel, before the gospel, the advent time, the first promise, or sometimes called the mother's promise in the Dutch tradition, verse 15. And so tonight, I want to look with you at the immediate fruit, the immediate beautiful witnessing fruit of this first promise. We're not going to look at the first promise. That's a whole other sermon. But the immediate, beautiful, witnessing fruit of that first promise in chapter 3 and spill over into the first verse of chapter 4. So that's my theme, the witness to the first advent promise. And we'll look at three thoughts. First, Adam embracing and confessing the promise. Second, Eve receiving and celebrating the promise. And third, God confirming and enlarging the promise. So the first advent promise in terms of its witness, the fruit it bore. And we'll look at Adam and Eve and God. Well, we read these remarkable words in Genesis 3, and our main text we're focused on now is going to be verses 20 and 21, and then Genesis 4, verse 1. Let me just read Genesis 3, 20 to 21 again. Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Oh, these are remarkable words. And why are they remarkable? Well, because of the stark contrast between verse 20 and verse 19. God had just spoken to Adam. He says in verse 19, in the sweat of thy face, this is your punishment for sinning and breaking covenant with me, Thou shalt eat bread till thou return to the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and to dust shalt thou return. God is announcing the death sentence of Adam. Adam's future appears gloomy. He's broken God's covenant. He's scorned his fellowship. He's injured his attributes. He's renounced himself as his creator's image bearer. He's chosen spiritual, physical, eternal death, and now he's destined for the grave. Unto dust shalt thou return again. And yet, astonishingly, 
Adam turns right around and says, your name is Eve to his new wife. Now that's a huge contrast because the word Eve means alive, living in Hebrew. Literally, the mother of all living. God says you'll die, and Adam turns around and says, Eve, life, living. How's it possible? How's it possible? How could Adam do this? Had he turned a deaf ear to what God said about death? No. But he also heard what God said about life. Back in verse 15, the Lord said to the serpent, and in the hearing of our first parents, I will put enmity between thee, Satan, and the woman, and between thy seed, Satan, and the woman's seed, and it, it is singular, the seed, there's one coming, it shall bruise thy head, Satan, and thou shalt only bruise his heel. There's victory. There's life in the air as well as death. There's white hope as well as black sin. And the result of this first gospel sermon in verse 15 is that Adam changes his wife's name to Eve. Hadn't the Lord spoken about the seed of the woman which would crush the serpent's head? Well, that seed will be born out of the woman. She would be the mother of that seed. And so Adam embraces by faith this mother's promise, the protoevangelium. And he gives evidence of it. He gives witness to that promise, that first Advent promise, by saying, your name shall be Eve, life living. Well, This is a glorious confession of faith. The first post-fall confession of faith in the Bible. Adam believes the Advent promise about the coming deliverer, and the fruit of that faith is simply the name he gives to his wife, in one word, Eve. Now, boys and girls, Adam had already given another name to his wife. You remember that. Woe man, woman, woe meaning coming out of, woman who came out of man, came out of the ribs of Adam. And this was, in Hebrew, it's, it's actually a poem, it's a song, it's like a song. This is now bone of my bones, he said, in Genesis 2.23, and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woe man, woman, because she was taken out of man. But that was Adam's first naming of Eve. But it was more. It was his wedding song. Joyfully he had embraced Eve as his God-given helpmate. But sin, which spoils everything, isn't that true, also spoiled this perfect marriage of our first parents. In fact, Adam even said, The woman thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. He's trying to blame her. This first marriage is in danger of collapse, don't you think? Adam is no longer intimate with his wife. They have both eaten of the forbidden fruit. They both feel their nakedness. They both try to sew fig leaves together to cover themselves even from each other. They're no longer close best friends, so to speak. And with some contempt, he points at her and says to God, the woman whom you gave to be with. Blames the woman, but he blames God as well. You see, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. That woman you gave me did that. So just when this marriage seems almost irreparable, God intervenes to rescue it from disaster. And after he heard the promise about the seed that was to come, Adam regains intimacy and friendship with his wife. He could accept her shortcomings now because he faced his own. He knew they were both sinners, but he knew that through the coming Advent promise, God would give life. So there was hope. 
White hope in the midst of darkness. And so this new name, this deeper name, this more personal name was also a song. It's also in poetry in Hebrew. Your name shall be Eve. Life. Dear church family, we have here one of the most simple yet profound childlike meaningful confessions of faith that ever proceeded from the lips of a sinner. It's as if Adam looks at his wife and says, I see in you the divine promise realized. I see that life will proceed from your womb. I see that God will carry out his purposes of grace in your seed. A seed that includes the deliverer, the savior, the Messiah, the prince of life. I see in you the pledge of divine forgiveness and love. And I proclaim my faith in all this, flowing out of God's advent promise back in verse 15. Before God and before all posterity, I declare openly, I declare victoriously, your name shall be Eve, life in the midst of death. Adam's faith is intense. It's victorious. It's simple. It's strong. It's firm. It's immediate. No sooner has he heard the voice of God announcing salvation through the coming one, and he receives grace to believe. It's remarkable, isn't it? He doesn't have any ifs. He doesn't have any buts. He doesn't have any hows as questions. He just trusts God's word completely without a moment's hesitation. How difficult, don't you think, that must have been. He, he just plunged the whole human race into sin. He had sinned against God, his maker, his lawgiver. A great gulf had been created between himself and the holy God. How could the breach ever be healed? Well, not by Adam. But you see, the promise was, God will do it. God will do it. I will put enmity between your seed and Satan's seed. I will send a deliverer. I will see that he will be born of that woman seed whom I gave to be with you. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Adam really heard He really listened. He really drank in the Word of God, the promise of God. He didn't even ask for a sign. God has spoken. He believes it. He trusts it. This first promise, this Advent promise, was to Adam like a glass of cool water to the parched lips of the first sinner. His faith puts us to shame, don't you think? God only spoke one time to him, and that a bit vaguely, about the rich gospel promise of a coming deliverer, but it was good enough for Adam. We have thousands, three or four thousand promises in the Bible of God to his people, and they're repeatedly expounded also from this pulpit. And yet we say questions like this. Well, how can a sinner like me ever be saved? Think about that question. Isn't God almighty? Isn't he in the business of saving sinners? Doesn't Paul say that he even has come to save the chief of sinners of whom I am? If God can save Paul as a persecutor of Christians, if God can save Manasseh, who strewn the, the, the streets of Jerusalem with the blood of the saints from one end to a, another, yes, even more, if God can save Adam, Adam, who plunged the whole of the human race, his whole posterity, into sin and into death, why can't he save you? Why are you so unbelieving? You know, Spurgeon has a wonderful sermon where he asks this question in one of his applications. I know because it struck me as a teenager very strongly in my soul. It gave me actually a lot of hope. He said, 
Jesus is the Savior of sinners. What are you? You're a sinner. He's in the business of saving sinners. And yet you say to him, why me? But I say to you, Spurgeon said, why not you? (laughs) Aren't you a sinner? You're exactly the kind of person he came to save. Why not you? If he can save Adam, he can surely save you. Adam bore enormous guilt. He ruined the whole human race, you understand. He led in the flood of evil upon the earth. He opened the gates of death for all creation. He stained the very ground on which he walked with a divine curse. He destroyed everything. He forfeited all rights to grace. He was worthy of nothing but hell and condemnation. And God saved him by the first promise. It's amazing. Now I know what you're going to say. Some of you are going to say, but you don't know my heart. You don't know my, 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 what's hiding in my closet. You don't know the terrible sins I've done. My friend, let me, let me just tell you a quick story. You've probably heard it before. But there was a boy, a teenager, and he left home. He ran away. And he did very bad things. He spent his money. He had no money left. And I began to think about home. He's much like the prodigal son, actually, in Luke 15. But he thought, my parents will never receive me back. (laughs) I've sinned way too, way too much. But he had a desire to see his mom and dad again. So he wrote them a letter. There was a a train track that would go through their property, the backyard of their property. And he said, "Uh, mom and dad, if there's the smallest corner in your heart open to receive me back and forgive me for all my sins, I want you to know I'm going to be coming on the train that goes through the backyard, and if you'll just leave a white sheet on the line, just one white sheet on the line, as a sign that you'll receive me back, I'll jump off the train and come home. His heart, his heart was pounding when he got on the train and was coming, coming to the, his old homestead. And as they came around the corner, they're making that last straight run through the backyard. His eyes are looking. His heart is pounding. Will there be a white sheet on the line? And suddenly he comes around the corner. And there's white sheets everywhere. There's white sheets in the trees. And there's white sheets on the roof. The whole backyard is full of white sheets. Welcome home, my son. This is the gospel. This is the father's love when he came to the prodigal. He embraced him with arms of mercy. He kissed him with lips of mercy. He ran to him with legs of mercy. He fell upon him with tears of mercy. He said, slay the fatted calf. This, my son, was lost. It is found. Let us, be, let us be merry again. God loves to save sinners. Adam believed that. Do you? Do you believe that? Worthy is the Lamb who saves sinners. He died for the undeserving He died for the ungodly. We don't believe in the justification of the godly. We believe, what Paul said, in the justification of the ungodly. There's no one to save for God but sinners. That's you. That's me. Your name is Eve. There's life in the promise, Adam says. So Adam, in naming his wife Eve bears witness to the first Advent promise, the gospel promise. The seed of the woman shall conquer the seed of Satan. Now, secondly, Eve. Eve receives the promise. Eve actually had sinned first, you know. She turned out to be a bad helpmate, not a good one for her husband. She had interrupted this beautiful marital harmony that they had, She too was involved in the guilt 
imputed to mankind, not as the covenant head, but as the one who tempted the covenant head, Adam, to fall. So what could Eve expect? Only to become, at best, the mother of sinners under the sentence of death. Death thou art, dust thou art, and dust thou shalt return again. She too would die. And she was condemned to a painful motherhood. She'd bear children in great pain. But now, in verse 15, she's told she'll be the mother of all the living. The living. And she's raised up out of the depths of sin. She's given a place in God's plan of redemption, personally and for her children, her seed. She too hears the promise. She too believes the promise. And now the promise is confirmed by her husband. The woman hears her husband call out her new name, Eve, life, living, and she embraces it. One-sided, sovereign grace, she receives her new name by faith. She too understood something of what God promised in the curse of the serpent, implied by her silence of approbation here and receiving this special name. And later on in chapter 4, verse 1, you remember, I read to you that when she has a firstborn son, what does she say? I named him Cain. And what does Cain mean? It means I've gotten not a man, King James says a man, but it's actually a definite article here, the man. I've gotten the promise. I've gotten the coming Savior from the Lord. She thought her firstborn son would be the Savior. Cain was the man. Well, Adam and Eve both believed the promise then, you see. And the result is that their marriage is saved. Their marriage is saved. Adam looks at his wife with loving eyes again. His love flows from a loving heart. No longer do they exchange bitter words. No more are they saying, oh, you made me sin. No. There's love again because they have a common faith in God's promise. A new life expectancy surges through them. New hope arises out of the darkness of sin and guilt. A hope that is focused on one thing, the promised seed. If you said to me, what's the most important thing for a good marriage? I would say exactly that. Where husband and wife together are focused on the Advent Savior. Their love meets in Christ. And they have this overriding commonality of oneness and purpose in life, in joy, in fulfillment, in meeting of life. It's all in Christ. And where they, a husband and wife meet in Christ, you see... They will basically have a good marriage, even if there are minor problems. It's this that is a cement that, that, that glues a marriage together and strengthens that marriage. That's true still today. That's why the Lord says don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever who doesn't have this common experience with you if you're, if you're a believer. That doesn't mean that Eve won't experience pain. Yes, she'll experience pain in childbirth. Adam will experience difficulties. His work will produce, there will be thorns and thistles in the earth, and his work, his task will be hard. He'll earn his bread in the sweat of his face. But they are united in Christ. And that's bigger than all the problems they will face. Somehow, They don't know all the details that we know because we have the whole Bible. But somehow salvation is on the way. And they believe it. They believe that a Messiah, some kind of deliverer is coming who will save them. And God will set straight that which is crooked. Where sin abounds, grace will much more abound. Now that's not always easy for Eve to believe. God never promises His people an easy life. He promises them a blessed life. Faith isn't always easy. Eve called her firstborn son Cain, the man. The man. But Cain turned out to be something different, didn't he? 
Eve celebrated the promise. When the first baby was born into the world, Cain, I've gotten the man from the Lord. But oh, Eve had so much, so much to learn. She had to learn together with Adam about the bitter fruits of their own sin. What marital sorrow, parental strife, earthly thorns and thistles they had yet to endure. What deep waters they had to run through. What staggering impossibilities. With man, the promised salvation is impossible. They had to learn that. But with God, all things are possible. They had to learn that as well. And one trial through which the Lord taught them that was through their disillusionment with Cain. Cain was not the Messiah by any stretch of the imagination. As a young boy already, they realized his sinfulness, his depravity. And it was discouraging for Eve. So when she gave birth to a second boy, she named him Abel. Abel means vanity, emptiness, just a breath. Or you might call it transitoriness. Eve's faith must have been a low ebb when when Abel was born. She must have been struggling, don't you think? Like the psalmist in Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. Where is thy God? Where is the sign of God's promise? I thought I had the man. All I've got is a naughty boy. Eve has entered the dark tunnel of doubt. And then it gets worse. You know the story, boys and girls. Cain actually kills his brother. And then he runs away. Runs away from God. Runs away from God's law. Runs away from God's word. It's a disaster. Adam and Eve lose both boys. Abel's murdered and they don't know where Cain is. He's a long ways away. He's run away. Picture Adam and Eve sitting alone at night in their little house. I wonder what they talked about at this point in their lives. You can almost picture Adam saying to Eve, oh Eve, it's all our own fault. We plunged the whole human race into sin, now we have to live it out. Abel is no more, and Cain, for all practical purposes, is no more. Oh, the bitter fruits of sin? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? And where is the promise? Don't you think it was a struggle? I think so. Adam believed so readily at first, and so did Eve, but now they had to live it out, and sometimes God brings His promises through, through many impossibilities. Where is the seed of the woman? There's, there's no child now. Can't come through Cain. And it certainly can't come anymore through Abel. What's going to happen? All these things are against me, Jacob would say later when in, in, in similar circumstances. But then God comes and visits Eve again. We don't read in the Bible how it happened. But all we know is that when everything seems hopeless, when they're bereft of both boys, Eve becomes pregnant a third time, and her soul is revived. And, and when the baby is born, she names him Seth. And Seth in Hebrew means restitution. God will bring back his promise. God will fulfill his plan. Her faith is somehow greatly revived. She believes that this boy, she doesn't say he is the man, but this boy through, through him, the line to the Messiah will be drawn. She believes that. Because the word Seth can also be translated appointed. Appointed. She believes that life will triumph over death. She believes it again. 
And Seth was God's line of fulfillment. What joy to Eve this child must have been as he grew up. As she saw the line of fulfillment carried out. As she celebrated the promise of God down through the generations. The godly line that led all the way to the seventh from Adam. Which was Enoch who walked with God for 365 years. And then there was of course Eve wouldn't, Eve wouldn't live to see that, but there would become Noah, and then Abraham, and then David, and then the seed in the fullness of time, the Advent Messiah, born 4,000 some years later. And the name Eve would be fulfilled in the fullest sense of the word. Life. Life in the Messiah. 4,000 years of bruising of strife. 4,000 years of satanic attacks. 4,000 years in which Satan is trying to annul the promised seed, the promised line of generations all throughout the Old Testament. Always attacking. But behind it all is this faithful promising God who will be true to His covenant. True to, to, to the promise that stands behind baptism and behind all the means of grace that God's Word is sure. In the promised seed. How different though are God's ways from Eve's expectation. Eve was cut off from everything. But God from the ashes of her doubts and fears caused the flame of faith and, and hope to burst forth again. Yes, the promise cannot utterly fail but it will go through but it will go through in a way in which you if you're a true believer you know what I'm talking about now a way in which he must increase and you must decrease God's promises don't go through because you've been such a good converted person (laughs) no way they go through because of his sovereign grace because he's true to the advent seed he's true to his own son that's why the gospel is sure Adam and Eve saw a lot in their life Adam lived to be 930 years old can you imagine that 930 years old he saw so much sin So much sin in his descendants. But he saw so much grace. Grace superabounded over all the sin they brought into the world. By that grace, they were kept alive throughout the centuries. They saw the godly line develop, even as they saw the ungodly line of Cain develop. And the seventh from Cain was Lamech, who was just notorious for his wickedness and murdering people. They saw joy and sorrow. Saw the godly line and the ungodly line. But the godly line would prevail in Bethlehem. And again in the coming of Jesus on the clouds one day. Yes, yes. Like Simeon, not literally, but in their mind. It was as if when they saw the godly line from Seth all the way down to Enoch, it was as if they held the Christ child in their arms and said, no doubt many times, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Oh, when you by grace believe in the Advent promise, your life may go through many difficulties. But that promise will ride over all the waves. And Christ will say, it is I, be not afraid. My promise is sure. I will carry you through. Yes, it's not just Adam embracing and confessing the promise. It's Eve receiving and celebrating the promise. But thirdly, it's also God confirming and enlarging the promise. We'll look at that after we sing from our... Oh, no, we don't sing here. Sorry. Uh, God confirming and enlarging the promise is our third thought then. And this promise, you see, of God Himself, God Himself, 
is confirmed in verse 21. Look at verse 21 with me. Unto Adam and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Coats of skins and clothe them. So God proclaims the first gospel sermon by way of verbal promise in verse 15. And now here he visualizes that first gospel promise by sacrifice. Both symbolically and through action. Adam and Eve had never seen anything die. Boys and girls, they hadn't even seen a mosquito die. And suddenly, God takes an animal, whether it was a lamb, some people say so, but we don't know for sure, but a bigger animal, and he kills it in front of them. He kills it. And they see the blood shed, and he makes coats of skin from the animals and he clothes them well this must have been a shocking experience in their life don't you think you know today we we get used to driving down the highway and you see a dead deer here and you go four miles further and you see a dead dead deer there and it's so common you don't think anything of it right oh there's another dead deer you just say I'm glad I didn't hit it My wife and I were once in a foreign country and um, we're driving down the highway and we saw a dead horse. A horse. It was enough to take your breath away. Just a great big horse laying on the side of the road. Wow. Somebody hit a horse. It was, a, it was kind of like a big deal. It, it took a while to get it out of our mind. What do you think of Adam and Eve? Having never seen death at all. And suddenly they see God coming. And God killing the animal. And clothing them. And teaching them. That so blood must be shed. That seed of the woman coming. Has to shed blood. To bring in a righteousness that is acceptable with God. And so this clothing was a symbol you see. That now they had to be clothed with something. Their own righteousness couldn't do it. Their own nakedness was no longer acceptable. They, they, they had made themselves shameful. They needed to cover their bodies with the righteousness of another, with the seed of the woman. And this is really representing here a symbol of how much of it Adam and Eve understood at that point, we don't know. But it's a symbol of justification, isn't it? Of righteousness taken together. You see, verses 20 and 21 declare that Adam and Eve are justified by faith alone. Adam has faith in the promise, and God confirms that faith by killing these animals and clothing him with what is symbolic of the righteousness of Christ to come. And so Adam and Eve see that they need this covering provided by God. Just as you and I need to see that we need that covering today. You can never stand before God naked. You can't answer one of a thousand of his questions. We are naked and open before him with whom we have to do, says Hebrews 4 verse 12. And without a better righteousness, no one will stand before God, you understand. And so spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, physically, Adam and Eve feel their sense of shame. They had tried to use fig leaves to cover their shame, but it didn't work. God ripped their fig leaves away. He gave them something better. He clothed them with his own clothing, with his own righteousness, symbolically, pointing to the Messiah to come. You see, this is what we have to learn experientially in our own hearts, in our own lives as well. My fig leaves will never work before God. My good works can never be presented to God as a, as a, as a good moralist, as if God will accept my morality and then make me righteous in His sight. No, no, no. God rips all my fig leaves away 
He brings me naked before Him, and He clothes me with the righteousness of Christ, and I believe in Christ alone as my righteousness. That's the way of salvation. And everything else is just fake. It's not worth anything. Not worth anything. And yet we go on, we go on in our lives, don't we, by nature, we try to play games with ourselves. As if our righteousness will somehow appease a holy, perfectly holy, righteous God. And we compare ourselves with our neighbors and we think we're not too bad. Yeah, we're pretty moral and decent and we go to church and we do all these things. Well, to do right things is not a bad thing, but you see, the problem is we have a bad record and we have a bad heart and nothing we do can make that right except what God does through His Son. Boys and girls, it's kind of like, it's kind of like playing Monopoly. Maybe, maybe you, you play Monopoly? You know how to do that? You have money, you start out with two $500 bills and $200 bills, right? You got all this money. And someone wins and someone loses. If you win, you got lots of money. But it's all fake, isn't it? You take all that Monopoly money, you can take all the Monopoly money in the whole game and take it to the bank, and they won't get one dollar for it. It's not real. And you can take all your good works and all that you do that you think God will notice and, and approve of you. You can put it all in a pile and present it to God, and God just says, fig leaves. It's all fig leaves. Yes, but Lord, I... I read good books, I, I go to the Lord's Supper, I, 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 tend, I listen to sermons during the week, I, I send my children to Christian school, I, I never miss church, I'm a Sunday school teacher, I'm baptized, I, I make confession of fig leaves, God says. See, when the Holy Spirit shows us who we are, we see that our whole life is fig leaves. Yes, but I work hard at self-affirmation, I try my best, fig leaves, God says. But... I repent of my repentances. Fig leaves, God says. But I've lost my worthiness before God, and now I come before Him as an unworthy one. Fig leaves, God says. Well, do I have to then lose my worthiness and my unworthiness? Do I have to lose everything before God? Yes, God says. Everything of you is fig leaves. The Lord God made them coats of skin. The Lord God made them coats of skin and clothed them. You can't clothe yourself. You're spiritually paralyzed. You're dead in sins and trespasses without God. We have a middle-aged man in our church who just a few months ago was riding his motorcycle bike and it slipped off the road and he hit a tree. He's paralyzed from here down. It's really sad. I was just over there this past week. And he wanted to show me how he could turn over. And he could barely turn over. But he needed help even to turn over. Just has a little feeling from here up. His mind is good. But he's trusting in the Lord. It's, it's a beautiful thing actually to see. But it's a very sad thing to see at the same time. He's paralyzed. He came to church this morning again for the first time in a wheelchair. It took so much work to get him into the wheelchair. Simplest things in life take so much time now. See, by nature, we're like that. We're paralyzed. God has to do it. The Lord God made coats of skins and clothed them. God can do it. God does do it. God will do it. He covers them. He covers our sins. He covers our unrighteousnesses. He's our atonement. You know, the Bible speaks of um, an atonement covering. An atonement covering. Atonement means at one with. God covers our sins and makes us at one with himself through the righteousness 
of Jesus Christ. That's the beauty of salvation. And God, you see, is confirming his promise here. In verse 21, he's confirming the promise of verse 15. I will send the seed of the woman. He will be your righteousness. And I'm symbolizing it now. I'm enlarging the promise by by visually killing these animals in front of you and clothing you with what is symbolic of his righteousness, Adam and Eve. See in your clothing, your very clothing, the righteousness of the Messiah to come who would be your total, your total salvation. Well, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And all the blood of the Old Testament, beginning with this blood here, in Genesis 3.21, through all the thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of sacrifices, all the blood dripping from the altar of the burnt offering, all of it points to that blood to come. And Jesus would shed His blood once and for all and give His offering, His bloody offering, once and for all. And now there's no more need of blood shedding. It's all done. It's all done by Jesus. Salvation is available Salvation is available for the greatest of sinners. So as I close this sermon, I want you to take with you this first gospel promise and ask the question, what impact has it had in my life? It had a great impact in Adam's life, for good. In Eve's life, for good. And God enlarged it for them. So they could see it in a picturesque, visible way on the very clothing of their body. Have you ever looked at the clothing of your body and said, this points me to the righteousness of Christ? My shame needs to be covered with his perfect righteousness. What is your religion? Basically, there's two forms of Christianity in the world. You're sitting here tonight, you're confessing, no doubt, that you believe in Christianity. But there's only two forms of Christianity, really, ultimately. There's the Christianity of fig leaves. The Christianity of your works. Or there's the religion of skins. The religion of the perfect provision of God through the death of His Son. Most people... Most people come to God with fig leaves. There may not be many fig leaves, but the smallest fig leaf will do for them. And they want God to recognize them. They want God to see something good in them. They will acknowledge His help, yes. His grace, yes. So long as they can keep their fig leaves. So long as they can do something for their own salvation. That's what almost all the religions of the world do. You do your part, God will do the rest. But that is precisely what God will not accept. Because if we have any part in our salvation, we're lost. We're sinners. We'll send it away again. Good works may please other people. Fig leaves may even look beautiful but they won't please God because there's been no death. There's been no blood shedding. The wages of sin is death. The only way to be saved is through the blood shedding of Jesus. Your fig leaves are no good. The white robe righteousness of Jesus Christ, that's what you need. The perfect Savior, the seed of the woman, only that will conquer Only that will conquer Satan and your own evil heart and make you stand in peace before God on the day of judgment. Only when you can say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, can you have assurance of your salvation. And then especially the last verse of that glorious hymn. When he shall come 
with trumpet sound. Oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. That's the ultimate fulfillment of Genesis 3, 15, through the seed of the woman. Pray for that. Don't rest until you lay hold of that, until by the grace of the Holy Spirit, you appropriate that to yourself and say, this now is my righteousness. I'm clothed with the blood-shedding righteousness of the Lamb of God. This is the mother's promise made real in your soul and prepares you for the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. May your life and may mine be a witness to the truth of the first advent promise of Genesis 3, 15. So it's not just profiting Adam and Eve, but you and me. Nothing less. Nothing less. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Is that 100% of your salvation? Then you're ready for the second advent. Amen. Gracious God, Bless this sermon. Bless us with a conscious sense of the beauty, the glory, the fittedness, the fullness, the satisfaction of thy righteousness in and through the blood of the Son of God. And help us to flee and to take shelter in that blood for the first time or by renewal, and to do so our entire lives, to say with, with Wilhelmus R. Brockel, hundreds of times a day, I flee to the blood of Christ. Hundreds of times. That's my refuge. That's my salvation. O oh Lord, we thank Thee so so much for the cleansing blood of Emmanuel. We thank Thee for showing it to us already in Genesis 3. Help us to find our rest in His blood, in His righteousness, alone, for Jesus' sake. Amen.